Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. We need heroes, Lonnie, and here you are. And what do you sacrifice? Calm. Kindness, kinship. Love. I've given up all chance at inner peace. I made my mind a sunless space. I share my dreams with ghosts. I wake up every day to an equation I wrote 15 years ago from which there's only one conclusion. I'm damned for what I do. My anger, my ego, my unwillingness to yield, my, my eagerness to fight. They set me on a path from which there's no escape. I yearn to be a savior against injustice without contemplating the cost. And by the time I look down, there's no longer any ground beneath my feet. What is my, what is my sacrifice? I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy to defeat them. I burn my decency for someone else's future. I burn my life to make a sunrise that I know I'll never see. Now the ego that started this fight will never have a, a mirror or an audience or, or the light of gratitude. So what do I sacrifice? Everything! Just stay with me, Lonnie. I need all the heroes I can get. Whoa, what a speech. Orated by the rebel leader Luthen from Andor. This series is a massive red pill suppository. Forget Andor being easily the best Star Wars content in generations. It's arguably the best written show this year. A fuck off. Ah, Luthen, you really did sacrifice everything. You made the mistake of ignoring what Philip K. Dick said in Vallis. To fight the Empire is to be infected by its derangement. In a Nietzschean way, 
you became a monster by fighting monsters. You stared into the abyss, and the Archon stared right back at you. As civil rights activist Audre Lorde once said, The Master's tools will never dismantle the Master's house. Whoever defeats a segment of the Empire becomes the Empire. It proliferates like a virus, imposing its form on its enemies. So, how do we defeat the Empire? We'll get into that while you settle in here at Aeon Bite once again. All to find that liberating Gnosis, those healing tears of Sophia, and the fate-destroying Caduceus of Hermes. I am not an Empire. I am a free man! But back to Andor. What is fascinating about this series is that the Empire is far more formidable and terrifying than in any other Star Wars fair, and that's without any appearance of Palpatine or Darth Vader. No, the Empire is truly horrific because it's just Hannah Arendt's the banality of evil on steroids. We get to see how the tyranny sausage is made for once in Star Wars. The Empire is comprised of autistic, penny-pinching bureaucrats, utilitarian technocrats, ladder-climbing managers, and utopia-desperate Boy Scouts. It's a many-tentacled monster where various factions elbow each other to drain the resources and vitality of the common man. From contract-thirsty corporations to inbred political families to neurotic secret societies or criminal enterprises. This slaughterhouse of individuality is held together by the barbed wire of algorithmic censorship, high-tech Maoist surveillance, double-think propaganda, and plenty of scientism. The Empire is psychotic and blind to any higher ideal like Yaldabaoth is in the Gnostic texts. Manufacturing an egregore seeking only to consume and snort the dark narcotic that is power. As Jung said, where love rules, there is no will to power, and where power predominates, their love is lacking. The one is the shadow of the other. Power is inflicting pain and humiliation, otherwise you cannot be sure. Power is tearing human minds apart and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. Power is not a means, it is an end. Oh, Papa Jung, the Empire is indeed so psychotic and blind, vast and like a starving, endless locust cloud. It's terrifying indeed. And guess what? We are living in this empire right now, here in the USA and its vassal butt-slave colonies we call the Western world. The empire never ended, Luthen. And how can we defeat it without being infected by its derangement? There's a beauty to this world. An order. That's what we like to believe. We're not wrong. 
there is an order. A grand design. We made sure of that. Not a better world. A perfect one. At Aeon Bite, you find out because the Gnostics were history's greatest rebels. The generation without a king, as they were known. Worse than Satan, as Church Father Irenaeus declared. They saw the whole of the moon and the entirety of the Death Star. It's a trap! For this, the world never stopped hating them. But here in the desert of the real, we are allowed to share those contraband truths. The more you tighten your grip, Tark, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. The Empire. The same template across history masked by a hologram. We'll be exposing its 20th century genocidal manifestation known as Communist Russia. For this, we have the honor of hosting again Dr. Stephen Flowers. He discussed his book, The Occult and National Socialism, last fall. Now he explains his book, The Occult Roots of Bolshevism. Another masterful work by Stephen on the dark forces that simply became our modern institutions. Fucking Nazis. They were Nazis, dude? Oh, come on, Donnie. They were threatening castration. Uh-huh. Are we going to split hairs here? No. Am I wrong? Well, he, he Man, they Am were I? nihilists, man. Huh? They kept saying they believed in nothing. Nihilists. Fuck me. I mean, say what you want about the tenets of National Socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. As a bonus for all subs, I'll include a section on my interview with Gary Lockman from his book, Holy Russia, where he discusses the 19th century esoteric streams that fed 20th century Soviet fascism. Complimentary and crucial to know. If it can be destroyed by the truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth. I want to mention a key point from the interview. If you thought cats like Stalin and Lenin were just atheists with a penchant for mass murder, think again. They were steeped in magic. As I keep saying, the Karens and Katamites of the Archons have been leveraging magic against us for millennia. Why? because it works. Time to use magic back against these fuckers. As Tom Robbins wrote in Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, disbelief in magic can force a poor soul into believing in government and business. The illusion of freedom will continue as long as it's profitable to continue the illusion. At the point where the illusion becomes too expensive to maintain, they will just take down the scenery. They will move the chairs and tables out of the way. And you will see the brick wall at the back of the theater. Beyond a magical life, and as Stephen has done with his two books, exposing the Empire is another way to overcome it. Any other ways? Sure. Keep waking up and discovering your inner kingdom. The awakening of an individual is a cosmic rebellion. 
disengage because, as Krishnamurti said, it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. You don't have to go full-on Lebowski or Tyler Durden, but lean into their self-actualized personas. Things you own end up owning you. Every time you grow something, you make a piece of clothing, you buy from a local business, you disengage. You begin to starve the empire. Every time you meditate instead of checking your social media, give gratitude to ancestors and wood spirits instead of stream Netflix. Every time you demand rigidly that any politician or brand prove to you they deserve your consent, you become part of the rebellion. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. So many ways to disengage and starve the empire. And it all depends on the downloads from your daemon. But stop for once thinking that those in high places care about you or your loved ones. They don't. They belong to the machine, my son. Stop thinking you can vote your way out of a problem or protest into freedom or post on common sections until change happens. That's exactly what the Empire wants you to do. Just stop and once and for all become a true rebel. No one is coming to save you. You are your own savior. So this is how liberty dies. With thunderous applause. I like what Mark Stavish recently and relevantly wrote about Andor. It goes, I did get the sense that Andor was really a veiled docudrama about the state of contemporary spirituality. Why is that? Because revolutions, like spiritual movements, are really fought behind the scenes, and you need money to make it happen and need to manipulate people constantly to get things done for, quote, the greater good. They all want to go to heaven, but none want to die. None can really go at it alone, despite the naive notion that it is possible. You need to learn to work with others. You can't simply, quote, keep your head down and go unnoticed. That is a fool's notion that goes against the very teachings of either rebellion or enlightenment. You know, the part about hiding your light under a bushel? This is where we hold them! This is where we fight! This is where they die! Entertainment is the modern mirror, and it reflects back to us that too many want their political freedom like they want their spiritual freedom without any pain or sacrifice. So they get neither and can't figure out why. That is why the various prophecies say only a few will survive. Not because more can't, they simply decided not to participate in the actions that will bring them the very thing they want. Freedom for themselves, and a means to help others get the same freedom, inner and outer. Train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. 
Well said, Mark. Now let us to our interview with Steven. Full show and bonus for all subs. The Empire never ended, but the rebellion, the true rebellion, has only begun. There will be times when the struggle seems impossible. I know this already. Alone, unsure, dwarfed by the scale of the enemy. Remember this. Freedom is a pure idea. It occurs spontaneously and without instruction. Random acts of insurrection are occurring constantly throughout the galaxy. There are whole armies, battalions, that have no idea that they've already enlisted in the cause. Remember that the frontier of the rebellion is everywhere, and even the smallest act of insurrection pushes our lines forward. And then remember this. The Imperial need for control is so desperate because it is so unnatural. Tyranny requires constant effort. It breaks. It leaks. Authority is brittle. Oppression is the mask of fear. Remember that. And know this. The day will come when all these skirmishes and battles, these moments of defiance will have flooded the banks of the Empire's authority, and then there will be one too many. One single thing will break the siege. Remember this. Try. This is the Aeon Bide interview. And as always, we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Stephen Flowers, this time to discuss his book, The Occult Roots of Bolshevism, From Cosmist Philosophy to Magical Marxism. Stephen, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Always great to have you. Well, thank you, Miguel. It's very nice to be here. I love uh, talking to you. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog, Vans. Vans, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Very excited to hear about the uh, magic Marxism, and maybe we'll hear about the heavenly Hegelism or something, too. <laughs> Somewhere in there. Somewhere in there you got Hegel. You have to, right? <laughs> A German idealism and so yep. forth. But, um, yes, Stephen, uh, last time we talked, we talked about the occult and Nazism and uh you even said that the Bolsheviks were sort of the, the big brother of the Nazis and a lot of their ideas, uh, and mm -hmm. it seems magic is one of them. But your book is great, but you start out with the book giving us your adventures in the Soviet Union, and my heart was racing for those few pages because it was kind of like James Bond going on an oh, adventure. Oh. Did you share with the audience? <laughs> Somebody who's that, been to the Soviet Union, though. <laughs> well, this was in in Hungary, but you know it was communist Hungary is where this happened. Yeah, I was uh, went to German language school and uh, made friends with a Hungarian guy who had escaped from Hungary uh, because they wouldn't let him study medicine there. His father was a doctor, but they wouldn't let him study because his mother was of German heritage and they had like an affirmative action program whereby they favored pure Hungarians in the in the communist government uh, and so forth. So anyway, he was trying to help others get out and there no one no information went in or out 
that wasn't monitored. So if you wanted to do it secretly, you had to send a courier, basically. And so uh, I volunteered to go and give these messages to these guys and uh, in the process went to a town where I wasn't supposed to be because you were if you went on a visa, you're just supposed to go to Budapest or major towns. I went to some little town and uh, was hanging out there with these people for a couple of days. And uh, and then I, as time went on, a couple of days went by, and then came the per, uh, proverbial pounding on the door <laughs> at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning or something mm-hmm. where the police came and said, you need to go to the police station immediately. And so I went there and they said, you've got to get out of this country, got X number of hours to get out. And so I went by train to the, uh, and at that time, the Hungarian trains uh, were steam engines still. So you had to switch engines when you went back into the West. And so the train stopped at the border, sat there. And I had messages, you know, stuffed down in my pants. So my friend said, oh, they won't strip search you or or (laughs) use the hoses on you because you're an American, so don't worry. But anyway, I didn't carry them openly, these messages. And so uh, just, you know, in Europe, when the train is about to leave, they blow a whistle, typically. And so the whistle blew, and I said, okay, I'm home free. I'm going to get out of here. And uh, then a giant of a man came to the door of the compartment and opened it and said, you know, Stephen Flowers in German it was, but uh, come with me. And so he took me off the train and went to this little guard station. And there were guys in there with machine guns and this kind of stuff. And they started to question me about what I was doing. What did I have? All this kind of stuff. Then they would leave and come back. You know, it was a whole routine. And so, uh, that uh, went on, and I was uh, 18 years old now, and no, you know, training of any kind of <laughs> at all. So, uh, so I just kind of, uh, you know, went along and hoped for the best. And eventually, they said, "Okay, get back to that." That little train came back over the border and stopped. So, just an engine and one car to take people like me to Austria, and there was no one else but me there, of course. But uh, And so I got on this car uh, in the back, and I went to the back of it. And then uh, the door opened in the front. You know, we're still in Hungary. And the door opens, and a little man, like a gnome, with the whole, uh, you know, Austrian, Tyrolean outfit with the hat, with the lederhose and all that, comes in. And he says, oh, they got you. What, what were you doing? You know, they, they, you, uh, I bet you had really got away with one, didn't you? All this in German, of course. And I said, no, I, I don't have anything. That's just a total misunderstanding. He went on for a while trying to encourage me to brag on how I fooled him. And <laughs> I wasn't doing it. And so uh, he left. And then I saw him hop out of the engine in the front of the train and he scampered off to that guard station, and they, then it left. I left uh, uh, with my uh, everything intact. But uh, I'd, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, 
uh, romantically at the time when I was a young, uh, high school age, it was the time of the Prague Spring, mm-hmm. you know, in 68, and all kind of romanticism involving rebellion against the communist authorities behind the Iron Curtain and all that. So I got to play a little bit of a game there. Uh, I wouldn't <laughs> call it any more than what it was, but I did escape with uh, my uh, everything safe and sound. Yeah, and you weren't was accomplished. Yeah, you, you weren't really nervous at the time, or like I said, at eighteen, we kind of don't sometimes realize the well, seriousness there, of there any situation. <laughs> Yeah, I was pretty, pretty uh, hungover. The guys had <laughs> taken me out to, uh, and had a whole bout of uh, drinking this uh, Hungarian wine called Egri Bikavir, which means uh, the bull's blood of Egri. It was like the thing they loved the most is this deep red wine, sweet red wine. And I drank huge amounts of that. And, uh, so maybe that helped me. I was just so bleary, you know. I I was too messed up to be too nervous. But really, uh, you just go on automatic pilot. I'm 18 years old. You know, uh, Vietnam was full of guys who, uh, you know, right. put themselves in danger. That's just part of being 18, I think. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Well, it's uh, yeah fascinating story and still good reminder how different Europe was once upon a time people don't understand Mm -hmm. what a different world it was and how much more Mm -hmm. intense and risky and dangerous it was even in western civilization so good story and uh, to start with your book uh, Stephen you mentioned too and I think this helps too with your book on Nazism that we discussed but you say there is a difference between esoteric and occult. What are the differences in your context, Stephen? Well, uh, occult is a more general term, I think, uh, whereby it is uh, knowledge, information, whatever, uh, that is either uh, un- unestablished that people have never heard of before or that it's been disestablished. It may be old knowledge that now is no longer a part of consensus reality, example being astrology versus astronomy. Astrology is now an occult science, whereas uh, 500 years ago, it was part of standard scientific thinking, you know. I mean, it was all very scientific to people in the Renaissance or something like that. So uh, that that's kind of a cult. When a, a esoteric is similarly hidden uh, knowledge, but it is uh, initiatory and uh, has to do with receiving and accessing information uh, and knowledge and even being in initiation, which uh, is is graduated and is subject to uh, established authorities or teachers, if you will. And uh, so it's more uh, a school of thought rather than the occult, which is could, any kind of witchcraft, uh, sorcery, etc., could be considered practical applications of occult knowledge. So no, it makes sense, and it's always a good distinction. So why don't we talk about 
how the Bolsheviks came around. Unfortunately, people today have uh, lost their idea of history. They think that history, that these figures just pop out of the ground like daisies, and they don't understand that things happen through centuries, sometimes thousands of years for these figures and movements to really get going. But it seems for the Bolsheviks, it's important to understand, again, uh, the 19th century Russia and what you write about is the Silver Age. Could you share with the audience what the Silver Age is? Well, that's uh, the end of the 19th century. Uh, Russia, like uh, Germany, France, all, everywhere, uh, was uh, uh, just uh, extremely enthusiastic about sort of uh, Satanism, uh, uh, black magic, uh, it was all part of the Romantic movement, uh, which was throughout all of Europe. But uh, in Russia, they had uh, a tradition, a uh, cultural tradition of a very radical sect of uh, belief. Most of the time they couched themselves as Christians, but uh, there are things like the, the Chalisti sect, or the Skopsi, the Skopsi were people who uh, mutilated themselves. The Skopsi means mutilated people, mm. and they would sac they would chop off limbs and uh, other things as part of a sacrifice. The, le the more things were that were chopped off, the more oh, holy the person was. And so sometimes they had people who were nothing but a torso. Oh, Jesus. And, and so I'm just saying this because. Uh, you shall see how radical, how how, how fanatical a, a, a considerable portion of the population was, and well, you see that, uh, uh, and you know that uh, it's a very volatile culture, and so when you think when that is something that is in the air, uh, something like. Marxism or Leninism or such things like that are uh, as radical as they might seem are not really that radical when you compare it to other things that are going on. Uh, you have things like the uh, the whole affair with uh, Rasputin, the uh, so-called right. mad monk and all, but uh, most of the things that were told about him were just anti uh, uh Imperial anti-Czar uh, propaganda. He was probably just a simple holy man who could have reputed to be able to heal people and that sort of thing. But but he, his whole aura was made into this satanic figure. And of course, I'm uh, remembering uh, when I was a kid. A mo I was a monster kid, you know, seeing monster movies, horror movies right, every yeah. Saturday at the theater and watching them on TV uh, constantly. And uh, so there was one film at the mid-60s there called with uh, Christopher Lee called Rasputin the Mad Monk. <laughs> Great uh, movie. And yeah. that, that had the whole, you know, everything that was ever told about Rasputin was uh, in that movie. And so he was, uh, so all of this was in the air. All of this was flying around and uh People don't realize, uh, certainly they don't realize, because you think of uh, Marxism, you think of atheism, you think of Bolshevism and the Russians and so forth, being extremely anti 
religious, uh, burning, blowing up churches, killing priests, all that kind of thing, right. all true. But uh, inside the Communist Party itself, you don't know what's going on. When uh, Chernyenko, the last, uh, before uh, Gorbachev, uh, ruler of Russia, he died. They had a bunch of old guys that were just kind of having a few, a year or two of power before they died. And uh, when he, at his uh, funeral, I remember watching it live back then, uh, there was his widow bent over his open casket, and she was like making all these religious Orthodox gesticulations, crossing herself and doing all this kind of stuff. And you're thinking like, well, wait a minute. You know, I thought these people were dyed in the wool atheists. But when research shows, just like uh, Putin, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, He's in a school brought up entirely his whole life in that system. Yet after the Soviet Union falls, all of a sudden he's a uh, Russian Orthodox saint. Oh, Russian Orthodoxy, that's the way, that's it. I'm so pious and the you know, and you think, well well, it's partly that uh Bolsheviks like Nazis are basically well, to understand them you have to understand first, I believe, that they are first and foremost gangsters. They want power. And they both uh, and the Bolsheviks were uh, probably more pure in this than anyone else ever. Uh, they were, uh, we, if you were a gangster, you say, I want gangsters fight over this turf or this racket or this little, you know, piece of action and so forth. But when you come down to it, as they did, they said, why not take the whole damn thing? The whole <laughs> country and everything in it will belong to us as a gang, as a corporation called the Communist Party. And nobody in there, that's one of the things people don't remember or realize about places like the Soviet Union or any communist country, uh, is that, so they are all communists there. No, they wouldn't, it was something you had to earn your way into to be a member of the Communist Party. You didn't just sign up. This was a privilege. This was something uh, something you had to earn by, through loyalty and sacrifice. Just like in a gang, you got to be a made man. <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't just say, "Oh, I want to be in the mafia." You know, start giving me money or whatever. I'll do anything. Uh, no, well, you got you got to pay your dues and come up through the ranks and all that kind of thing, and then maybe we'll invite you. You know, to be a, a member, and, not, and there was no more than ten percent of the population was in that party. That was a new aristocracy. That's what these, whether it's the Nazis, same thing. You know, it was uh, you had to earn your way in. That's where they learned most of this uh, procedural uh, kind of work that was from the from the left. The the National socialists are socialists just the same. It's just the distinction is one is based on economics or class or left, and the other is supposedly biological, racial. But that's those are their respective myths. But the point is, you're in, you're not in. 
And anybody can be in that the leader says is in. And anybody can be out the leader doesn't want to be in. You know, and uh, so uh, the Communist Party is a, is like a magical order or a brotherhood or a, uh, uh, a secret corporation that owns and controls everything in the country. And there's no better racket than that. And the whole point at the end of the Soviet Union was simply this, that they said this racket is not working as well for us as it could work. And what did they do? They just just like in the medieval times, said, well, the party owns everything, owns all the property, all the businesses, everything. So we will give this to cronies, to guys who, who how, how come this guy now owns the car company? How come this guy owns the energy company? Like we're familiar in the headlines about all the corruption with the energy and so forth in the Ukraine and everywhere. Well, these things were divvied up, just like a medieval knights were given land and property and so forth and so on by the king who owned all the land. And that's true in any monarchy. Even today in England, the, the monarch actually owns the country. That's why they call it real estate, royal estate, royal property. All real estate is that. In a monarchy, uh, they own it. And in a communist country, formerly, they, they owned the party owns all of the assets of the country. And so what happened was they just said, well, that racket's not working anymore. It could work a whole lot better, and we could be living a lot better life uh, if we just kind of went medieval and just divvied this up and all my buddies get pieces of the property. And uh, most of them, they can live in London or wherever they want and own soccer teams, <laughs> and uh, they're jet setters now as opposed yep. to these dour sort of plodding Communist Party officials, now they're playboys, or were, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but uh, Putin, you know, he just went back to this nationalist, uh, religious mythology concerning uh, Moscow is the new Rome or the third Rome or whatever these you know, mythologies they have. And uh, this was alive during this Silver Age, this whole mystique, the Russian mystique. Uh, nationalistic mystique was uh, in full force, but uh, the Silver Age was mostly marked by romanticism, and there was a dark kind of romanticism in which, uh, and you see that even in some of Putin's most recent speeches, he harps on Satanism. He actually talks about Satanism, and that the, that the, uh, uh, the West is involved in these satanic cults against his authority and so forth and so on. But these myths are this kind of a cult mentality was present <laughs> over a hundred years ago and continued to be present throughout and is now again, once again on display. So yeah. uh, Russia is a, a mysterious place. And one of the uh, interesting <laughs> things about it is similar to, of course, most of the ideas of the of these Russians that came from other countries, 
from uh, Germany, from uh, Marxism is a, itself is a German philosophy, from France, England, etc. There's all these romantic ideas. And so they imported heavily. But if you compare it to Germany, Germany was extremely well educated, very broadly educated, uh, huge industrial level of, of education is just incredible, was in the 19th century. But in Russia, it was still very medieval. That's why Marx himself said, revolution can never come to Russia. That would disprove my whole theory. But his theory was... <laughs> That uh, you know, there was a historical dialectic, which is, as I point out in the book, this substitutes in the academia in your local college today. You know, this substitutes for science, Marxist thinking, which is uh, that there's a historical dialectic. There was original of communist utopia uh, in this sort of ancient primeval world. Then the uh, the original uh, problem comes about when private property gets introduced. Then uh, we have a feudal a slave state, uh, like in Rome and Greece and so forth, slave state, then feudalism, then capitalism, and then capitalism will collapse of its own weight, and socialism will be ushered in by the uh, workers, and they will set up a state that will then, with through these rules and regulations which they apply, the state will then wither away and then we will return to a communist utopia in which there's no private property and everyone is equal. Now that, what I just outlined there is, is, is the Marxist theory of the historical dialectic. It, it doesn't get much wackier than that. <laughs> That's a pretty occult no. Mentality, and of course, uh, Marx was brought up a good Lutheran kid. Uh, his parents had converted from Judaism, and so he was not really exposed to that. Uh, it wouldn't matter. I mean, it's the same Judeo-Christian myth. That's that, that. That's what that right. is. You have uh, Eden, and then original sin here, property, and there uh, uh, disobedience to God. Then there are these God's plan unfolds, then Jesus comes to give the good news, and everyone can be saved if they believe in him, and there's a thousand-year uh, millennium at the end of time, all that kind of stuff. It's just a, a secularization of that right. occult uh, mythology. Both of them are equal. What, what, on what basis are you are you uh, coming up with this? <laughs> but, 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 well, dangerous or unfortunate thing is that this Marxist uh, dialectic, I it does substitute today for good, solid, intellectual thinking, right? That's, right. What, that's what your typical professors of today are, are preaching in their classes. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. 
Parker, engineering your success. But that's the that's the problem, and the same thing would happen in a, in, a, in a Nazi Germany, etc. The the party line becomes the uh, establishment line. But and just because it's the establishment doesn't mean that it is any less irrational or occult or unsubstantiated knowledge uh, just due to the mass of people who believe in it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's the way that the, now the, one of the interesting things, I'm sure you'll get to that, uh, you know, is this whole idea of cosmism, which is right, yeah. it's completely uh, different. It was rooted deeply. Most of the, the, the main thinker in this, Nikolai Fyodorov, who was a genius uh, visionary uh, who founded the idea, but didn't write anything in his own lifetime. He wrote, but he didn't publish. He just interacted with influential people, and uh, this idea spread in Russia. It was a Russian idea. But uh, the, those ideas of cosmism are so off the chart, not necessarily, well, yeah, they're pretty irrational. For example, his uh, Theodoros main concept was the common task, which was to ensure physical immortality for humans, that they would become physically immortal, and that they would, through science and technology, would be able to resurrect the dead and give them eternal life also through science. Now, he was a total orthodox uh, uh, fanatic. He was a religion. He couched his things in religion, see, because that's what Christianity uh, promises, right? All right. The resurrection of the dead and uh, immortality. So uh, that is what the... Uh, he was wanting to do through science. See, that's that's one of the main features of cosmism. Yeah, very true, and yeah, extremely well said. Uh, like uh, you were talking about the these thugs, these gangs. It's like mm-hmm. Orwell said, "Power for the sake of power." And Uncle Joe Stalin was a bank robber. He was like a a Georgian Tony Soprano for all practical right. purposes. And uh, yeah, the idea of um, Russian cosmism, kind of people are going, this is, sounds like today's transhumanism or technocracy. Right. Like, yes, mm-hmm. it's the same thing that's coming back to bite us in the butt. And yeah, the cosmics believed mm-hmm. in the biosphere and the new sphere so much that influenced mm-hmm. uh, 19th, uh, 20th century. You talk really well about how it was influenced by Zoroastrianism and their, quote, creative evolution ideas and the, the Gnostic Persian Mazdakites and all that. And it makes sense, Stephen, because you also write that Vladimir Lenin had that Gurdjieffian idea that every man's a machine and every mm-hmm. man could be part of this perfect machine that would live right. forever and be the most perfect, sterile thing in the cosmos right immortal <laughs> right and if he could only figure out how the machine works that is right. the social cultural mechanism then that's how you, uh, one figures out how to 
to operate the revolution and operate the the population and the the state as a machine also. And, of course, uh, Lenin was was just using what he thought. He got outsmarted. He thought he was using Stalin, using his muscle, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, his brutality. But then when it was like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm dying here, (laughs) I'm moments (laughs) away from dying, he was trying to get... Yeah, he was trying to stop uh, Stalin from taking over. He was in that position uh, to do so, and uh, it, it didn't work. But he knew what would what was coming, and it was all good for us in a sense, uh, for the West anyway, because uh, the the mismanagement of the cosmist ideas by people who were not didn't have the subtlety of mind to really operate with it, uh, made the Soviet Union. That was their death knell. Before there was ever Ronald Reagan or any or Star <laughs> Wars or anything like that, they were killing themselves uh, through incompetence. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, I had a book when I was back in my days when I was talking about my, my youth. I had a book it was way, way back in the late 60s, obviously, from the title. The title was, it was written by a Russian dissident. Uh, and the title was "Will the Soviet Union Last Until 1984?" <laughs> and his uh, his uh, supposition or his theory was that it wouldn't because of these, this, that, and the other thing. It was just collapsing of its own incompetence. That was in the late 60s. Of course, it lasts till a few more years. But he was closer to correct than uh, incorrect, and uh, so that that. Uh, they they had ideas that, uh, uh, for example, uh, about space travel. These cosmists were uh, enthusiasts for space travel because, you see, if you make everybody immortal and if you resurrect all the people who ever lived and, and give them immortality, that's going to get a very, very crowded planet quickly. <laughs> so quickly. we've got to uh, colonize space. And uh-huh. to do that, so these uh, Russian uh, uh, visionaries uh, had envisioned uh, space travel, and and uh, they wrote about it in science fiction novels. One of the chief Bolsheviks was uh, Alexander Bogdanov, who wrote a science fiction novel in 1905 called Red Star, about how a revolutionary Russian is taken to Mars uh, by Space Brothers, and they show him their communist utopia on Mars. And so it's his task to return to Earth and uh, institute a revolution uh, in a similar fashion on this planet. And that's that book was so popular uh, on a mass level that that's why the Russian Red Army uses the Red Star as their symbol. Oh. Yeah, because of that science fiction novel, but yeah, they, they had the uh, idea of that you've got to have stages of rockets that they go up, then they get all the things that we, uh, and the, they wrote books on it, but they, no one really read them, except there was <laughs> one guy in Germany who did, and that was Werner von Braun. Oh, wow. Who, uh, in his, you know, in his possession or whatever, he had a translations of these Russian works. Uh, 
you know, that, that that's where you got a lot of the basic ideas from. Of course, he implemented them. They could never implement them until later on, after they had their German scientists. But see, that what they did, we just brought the Germans over and made them Americans. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, exactly. You know, I was like 100 or more <laughs> over that. And so uh, we just did that. But what they did is they took the, the few, they didn't get the good Germans. They just got a few straggler scientists, you know. Right. But they knew something about rocketry and whatnot. Uh, and uh, so they uh, brought them to Russia and uh, said, here, teach these our, our scientists everything you know. And then they sent them back to Germany, never to be heard from again. And so they, they, uh, they're, uh, and also they, they were obsessed with going to Mars. And it was really 1964, I believe, before they changed their space program. See, we thought we were in a space race for the moon all along, but they were going for Mars. But that was way, way, way beyond their capabilities. So when you try to do something you really can't do, it really wrecks your whole system of uh, your whole operation. So they they were hopeless from the beginning, as far as all that's concerned, just because because they allowed ideology to override actual science. They had this one guy named uh, Lysenko, Lysenko. And he was a botanist or, you know, guy. He, and he had a theory about uh, applied Marxist theory to raising wheat crops where there would be different types of wheat that were different classes, like the proletariat kind of wheat versus this, that, and the other. So he, he instituted all these kind <laughs> of nonsensical, mystical, uh, irrational ideas into the science of raising wheat. And Stalin just loved this guy because he figured out how to apply Marxist theory to raising wheat. And so he was put in charge of the whole operation of the wheat crop. And these crops would fail repeatedly because he was using occult ideas, crazy irrational ideas, instead of scientific ones. And so the Russians starved and and they failed. And that, of course, this, this is one of the things about these kinds of societies. Uh, no matter how many times they fail, they never learn their lessons <laughs> because they're so dedicated to, oh, well, you know, no, the Christians didn't. Oh, eventually, after it has to break down from another side. But the Middle Ages, they, they never thought, well, we're believing a lot of superstitious nonsense, and so that's why at one point uh, in the, what we call the Middle Ages, uh, the world of Islam was so far and away uh, ahead of us in all things scientific, right, right. Uh, in the Middle Ages. And uh, so because they had freed, and at this point it's hard for us to believe this particular thing right now, Given what we, how most Islamic countries work today, or many of them, uh, is that the, the way the system works is that you do your obligations to religion. You pray your five times a day, and you do this and that, and uh, so forth, and you do all these external things. That's all we really require. Then, 
you can think what you want, write what you want. So they would translate Plato and Aristotle into uh, Arabic and start processing this information. Whereas the Christians said, you can't read those pagan authors. We'll get one of our boys like Augustine to Christianize and thus sort of cripple the thinking uh, of these philosophers. And that's what we will consume, but not the straight story, whereas the Muslims were were absorbing Greek thought uh, long ago. And uh, that's one of the reasons, because they did have changed that kind of thinking and and uh, ideology or religious ideology has taken over so much in Islamic countries. That's where you can trace their falling behind is not because of some colonialistic this, that, or the other thing, but rather their own uh, submission to ideology that cripples their their uh, scientific modes of thinking. And the Russians were the same thing. Anytime ideology overrides logic or rationality, you're, 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 you're toying with disaster mm-hmm. as far as trying to keep up with, uh, with uh, things intellectually. Oh, that's really well said. And yeah, as uh, you write in your book, or I wanted to mention, you do a great job of really separating uh, concepts that people get confused, like the difference between Marxism and Leninism and Stalinism, which are actually Mm -hmm. three different. All of them use, as you talk about in your book on uh, occult Nazis, use the, the magic of mind control and symbolism. They're all very good at it and using their words. But it seems, yeah, Stalin basically got rid of pretty much any of that positive magic uh, thinking. Mm-hmm. So he just wanted the power. But Lenin, he he was interesting because he still had sort of a, a that idea of cosmism. You know, even when he died, people, there's his body. One day he'll come back to life and all that. But right. And you talk about his uh, right-hand man, uh, Antony Lunakarsky. He was a Freemason, yeah. a symbolist. And he believed in this idea of God building or egregores. Could you explain what that is? Because after Stalin died, the Soviet Union kind of tried to bring back that God building, even though, as you say, they, they failed. They lost the plot by that. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, because there were human resources were not up to what it was back in the time of the re- revolution itself, right. which had, had all these uh, people from that sort of romantic world uh, uh, there. Yeah, God-building is, well, if we say, uh, again, that's why a German idea, uh, Feuerbach, uh, had uh, originated this, uh, the idea that, uh, okay, God doesn't exist, but since he does, it doesn't exist, or he doesn't exist, why not uh, make one, right? I mean, how, <laughs> yeah. why not create one? Since we, we will assume almost in a Wagnerian since that's what Wagner was trying to uh, get across is that, uh, okay, humans are now are responsible for what the gods formerly had been responsible for. So humanity has to step forward and make things happen. Uh, because in medieval Christianity and so forth, where people are Judaism, etc., people are just waiting for God to act, right? Just having faith uh, and waiting for God to act. And so, well, that's no good. That's not working. So let's take charge. Let's, uh, and so we'll create and construct our own uh, divinities. 
uh, our own divinity, which is uh, humanity, really. So uh, in that sense, they, uh, it's a Renaissance kind of idea, in a way, uh, Italian Renaissance concepts uh, being brought forth also. Uh, sort of Pico della Mirandola, who wrote right. on the dignity of man, he said humans are indeterminate. All other animals are determined by nature. A wolf is a wolf is a wolf, et cetera, et cetera. But man is a cre- creature, an entity of indeterminate nature, and he can make of himself what he will. And this is sort of pure Neoplatonism, that sort of thing from the Italian right. Renaissance. So uh, God building is that sort of of thing. Uh, so you can design your own God. And, and of course, they started at early Bolsheviks were had a lot of rituals and they weren't as good at it as the Nazis were because they just uh, didn't have that kind of imagination or sense of style that uh, the Nazis had. But uh, they did have rituals and procedures and beliefs and so forth. Some of the wildest ones. There's this book, which you can get on the internet. It's the PDF. It's an old book from the 1920s. It was originally in German, but it was translated back then, uh, called The uh, Face of uh, Bolshevism, uh, The Spirit and Face of Bolshevism. It's a huge book, uh, and it talks about all the things that are going on in Russia today. And this was the 1920s. And uh, has rituals and their weird uh, uh, associations and organizations and publications that were they had and so forth. They had things like they had things called African Nights, they called them, wherein oh. young people got together and had indiscriminate sex with one another. And uh, it was not proper for a girl to refuse the advances of any man. And so that was, I know what they wanted to do was create children out of this. And it kind of has shades of the, of some of the things you hear about in the Middle Ages about satanic cults where they get together and have orgies and produce children, which in the stories of the Middle Ages they've sacrificed and so forth. These are all just didn't happen, but these Aphrodites did happen. And what they wanted was to produce children who had no actual parents or no actual father. A very important, Marx talks about it in in, in Engels uh, quite a bit about the family and how you need to break down and destroy the nuclear family in order to have a communist utopia. So the people know who their fathers are, they're very uh, problematic. And so if we have a population that doesn't know that, and they are corporate, have a corporate father, the party or the state, then you will have a, a, a better future. So they so they said. So that was what their the idea behind these African diets, things like that were, to create children who had no identity, family identity beyond the state the, and the party. Uh, and the, the fact that this didn't work, Stalin was just totally concerned. He just kind of went back to everything that was normal Russian, you know, 
right. family and whatever, just good old <laughs> normal guy. Uh, and that's what really, again, I mean, that's a good thing, but it really put an end to the to the radical uh, programs of, of the Soviet Union in the sense that, like, if you said, well, uh, at a certain point, the state or the establishment will fall away or just fail, uh, well, what would happen in a place like the United States? Well, you'd probably be in a pretty bad situation because that we turned our kids over to the state, to the school system, et cetera, for the most part. And they are doing a, a rather poor job of, of uh, instilling kind of values and things like that in the kids. Uh, parents have said, oh, forget that. The school's doing that. I know these things are changing now, but that's been the story. And just generationally, when the establishment collapses, uh, you kind of be left with nothing because there's nothing. They haven't been schooled by their parents in their own mythology, their own family uh, cultural mythology. Now, how that was so totally different from Russia was this: in the Russian schools, the uh, Soviet schools, uh, of course, it was totally one hundred percent state-run indoctrination. The media was nothing but state-run operation, uh, et cetera. So uh, at home, at the kitchen table, the parents told them, everything you learn in school is a lie. Everything you hear in the media is a lie. So uh, we're going to tell you what the truth is. And so they got an indoctrination in the family or the, the good old. And it's, but by the way, kid, do not tell your friend, the next door neighbor, anybody else what we are saying here. This is secret. You know, it's the truth, but you cannot say it to anyone. Keep your head down, silent about it. So it's like a secret tradition based on just family uh, tradition. It's just what the parents told them. And so when the Soviet Union does collapse, you know, all those ideas were were, were preserved and there because they had been preserved in this kind of way. Not necessarily that they were very good ideas, you know, but <laughs> it's a pretty, uh, pretty uh, stable, pretty, pretty vigorous uh, and vital, vitalistic kind of thinking uh, that does survive because it was uh, carried out in secret uh, at the kitchen table. And that's kind of what, as a culture in general, you know, the Americans don't ha don't have or haven't had in the past few decades. Yeah, indeed. What do you think, Vance, or do you have a question for Stephen? Oh, this is all fascinating. Uh, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, um, have you ever seen that movie, uh, Things to Come, uh, from, you know, oh, yeah. based on H.G. Uh -huh. Wells' Wings Over the World? <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it was more optimistic for that sort of thing at the time, you know. But yeah, a that, lot of those dystopian, until Orwell, you know, sort of says, look, <laughs> this stuff is, you know, it's, Going that, that's going to end badly. It's bad news. And of course, he saw it at, at his own. Uh, we wrote it in 1948, and the 
title of the book, 1984, is just a reversal of those numbers. He was saying, this is happening now, <laughs> you know. This right. is not so far off future. It's uh, I'm doing it that way so you swallow it easier, you know, and understand it. But it's sort of be a better story. But uh, really, it's things that are happening right in front of us. We newspeak and all of those things are uh, we experience them constantly in our lives today. As always, this has been a great uh, discussion. And as always, I'll, of course, say for the audio, where can people find your book, The Occult Roots of Bolshevism, and more from you, Stephen? Well, if they go to seekthemysteries.com, they'll find all my books that are available uh, uh, for publication. They're all there. And so that's where it is, seekthemysteries.com. And that's where I would advise people to go. Well, check it out. It's a really good book. Audience, The Occult Roots of Bolshevism, From Cosmic Philosophy to Magical Marxism. Uh, we only touched the surface, but it's truly a fascinating and important topic. But yes, we are at the end of this revolution. So I'll say, Vance, thank you very much for uh, being here and keeping us company. Oh, it's been a re-education. Yeah, re-education camp. A re-education camp. Oh, no. Right. I'm now indoctrinated. I'm fully indoctrinated, sir. Yeah. I see the same things. Awesome. So hopefully a lot of other people will wake up to it and, you know, like we can get our act together. Well, that's another thing I'd like to conclude with. Uh, in the coming years, a couple of years, I'm going to have something called the Wood Harrow School, where I'm going to try to convey not all these initiatory ideas, but, but what I was trained to teach, which is ancient Germanic uh, mythology, religion, and such yeah, from a completely scholarly perspective because that's been wiped out of the ac academy. They don't want to hear that anymore. So I'm going to try to reforge the link and make these kind of things available in my last years here uh, to get these things down because it's not happening anymore. It's gone. So that's... Awesome. So that, but I think others, as far as I'm hoping also, is not just this is the idea, this is the answer. No, this is my work. And others, I hope, would see other uh, th things that are being lost to this world need to be recovered and continued and overcome this effort to destroy our heritage, our culture, our ways, whoever, whatever they are. You know, and well, that's where we can we can trick, we can double, <laughs> you know, we can the technology, we can find its Achilles heel. That kitchen table that uh, where you can have your own little kitchen table to keep it alive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, you like. Unlike you, you won't have the secret police knocking at the door. No, no. Hope. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, all right. Well, well Stephen, appreciate well, thank, it. Well, thank you very much for coming on AM Byte and good luck with all your projects. Thank you. Hope to speak with you again soon. And there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds. Stephen exposing the rulers of our age. In our second part, Stephen will deal more with Stalin and his occult predilections. Stephen will give us his take on being woke, postmodernism, and Marxism. 
you'll never guess what side he's on with these issues. This will lead to a small state of the union on today's culture and where we're heading. No bueno, senor. And much more. As mentioned, and as a bonus for all subs, I'll include a section of my interview with Gary Lockman from his book, Holy Russia, where he discusses the 19th century esoteric streams that fed the 20th century Soviet fascism. Complimentary and crucial to know. So please become a member for the full Red Pill Suppository. Only $6.99 a month for AB Prime or $4.99 at Red Circle or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. The Virtual Alexandria Academy is now open. Link on the show notes and on my homepage. It's the premier and only online course on Gnosticism. Finally learn about the Sethians, Sophia, the Valentinians, the Gnostic Jesus, Thunder Perfect Mind, the Gospel of Thomas, Mary Magdalene, the Archons, as well as all manner of Gnostic rituals like astral flights, sex magic, entheogen ceremonies, and so much more. There is a holiday rollout promo that is ending soon. Get 20% off with code AMBITE. Don't miss it. Other than that, keep rebelling. And thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.